You've built a cool web app or service, and you want to make sure your customers have a great experience. You know I advocate for utilizing automated tests so you can find bugs before your customers do. However, fast development life cycles and quickly reacting to your customer needs is a good thing, and we all know that complete testing is not possible. That's why I firmly believe that site monitoring tools like logging, crash reporting, performance monitoring, etc. are awesome for maintaining and improving user experience. I had a problem, however. I'm not completely savvy in all the ways of the web, as I've spent most of my career in embedded development. And I know many of you are working with web applications. So how do I close the gap? First, I'm learning. Second, I reached out to Raygun as sponsors for the show because I like what they're doing and I know their products fit many of the problems that you have. Third, J.D. Trask, the CEO of Raygun, agreed to come on the show and let me ask all of my questions about this whole field. So cool. That's what this episode is about. Yes, Raygun is the sponsor of this episode and a whole bunch more, but I also think this is great information about the field as a whole. I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. I normally stick an ad in the middle of the podcast, but for this episode, I just think that would be weird. So I'll just tell you now, if you like what you hear in this episode, check them out at raygun.com. Welcome to Test and Code, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. On today's episode of Test and Code, I've got JD Trask from Raygun. So, um, if people don't know who you are, could you introduce who you are? <laughs> sure, I'm the uh, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. Uh, I'm a Kiwi, hence the the accent down here in New Zealand, and uh, absolutely love coding, love business, uh, love everything about about software in, in general. Yep. Okay, so what is Kiwi? Kiwi is just somebody from New Zealand, or does it is there more meaning than that? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a colloquial term we use for New Zealanders. Uh, we call ourselves Kiwis. Um, and so it, it's not an offensive <laughs> offensive term. When I did travel overseas, I met one guy who thought it was an insult down here, uh, <laughs> which, which felt really odd. But no, we tend to kind of call ourselves Kiwis. It's been a bit muddled the, uh, in recent years by the, the, the Kiwi fruit, which seems to have been shortened to being called Kiwis around the world. But uh, we typically mean it in terms of the bird that can't fly. <laughs> huh. Okay, this is totally not where I was going to go with this. But I is does the fruit have a longer name? No, it's just called kiwi fruit. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. I worked in produce when I was in college, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure they're just kiwis. But okay. Uh, no. Anyway, but so, so is the bird, though. <laughs> yeah, and they're not related, right? Like kiwi <laughs> birds don't eat kiwi fruits. Do you, do I feel you, I, I'm so tempted to tell you that they lay kiwi fruit right now, but um, <laughs> so, no, okay. totally disconnected. Both can fly about about as well as each other, though. So, okay, well, what I wanted to talk about was Raygun instead of kiwis, but uh, Raygun is uh, your company, right? Yeah, so so we we set it up to uh, do software crash reporting, so picking up on the faults that people don't 
sort of necessarily plan for. Uh, we also have a real user monitoring product to understand the performance that uh, our end users are experiencing. And uh, more recently, we added in a full APM product, which uh, stands for Application Performance Monitoring, where it tracks basically what is my code doing on the server? Like, why, why might this thing be slow? Uh, what's going on here? So kind of gives you that full pane of glass between user experience, what's blowing up, and and uh, where, where the performance um sort of sinkholes might be across your code, whether it front end, back end, that sort of stuff. So it's more of a slightly maybe after the testing phase, more, a, you know, typically sweet spot is folks wanting to track stuff in production and see, okay, what what are all the things we didn't plan for? <laughs> this is all kind of exciting to me. Um, most of my the web development I've done has been internal sort of stuff, small tools for internal to a company, handful of people using it. And people just tell me, hey, the the wiki's down or something like that. And then I go reboot the server. But so this is on a different level, obviously. I know that there's a lot of people listening to testing code that are uh, heavily into all of this, either testing um, uh, web applications or in the DevOps space of keeping it up. So this um, Reagan sort of fits into what we think of as part of the DevOps job. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, around the time DevOps as a term sort of started popping up was about when we launched uh, Raygun Crash Reporting, which was the first product in the suite in about 2013. And um, it's it's always seemed a little interesting to me. Everybody has a different view on what DevOps is. And um, I, I'm personally of the view that it's more about the behavioral style of, of developers and taking ownership through production. Um, but when it comes to tooling, I've noticed that Generally, everybody only seems to think of continuous integration and continuous deployment as being um, the, uh, the, the sort of DevOps tooling pipeline. Um, now, there'll be people out there that are thinking, God, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. It's much more. And there'll be people out there that kind of go, well, it's nothing to do with tooling at all. And that's that's kind of part of the issue with the label. Okay. Um, but I, I've always found it interesting that it stops there. And in my, my mind, um, like what we're doing and what a lot of people do uh, is – you need that feedback loop from production because it's well and it's all well and good that you can kind of get from code into prod really fast, but that's not a complete circuit. Once you start getting the the sort of intel back from once it's in production back to the developer, you can kind of imagine now you've got this virtuous feedback cycle, right? That can run super fast. It's great. You've put the effort into getting into prod really fast, um, but now we can deploy to prod, notice an issue, you know, and fail forward, fix that with a small improvement. Um, you know, because we got told about it automatically really quickly, push that out, um, and it, it really helps to accelerate uh, software delivery okay. in general. Has been what I, has been the experience we, we've sort of found and going to promote. The term crash reporting is a little scary. <laughs> I mean, I don't want any crashes. I mean, reporting might be great, but I mean, aren't all crashes bad? Generally, yes, um, they they are bad. Uh, they the it, it, the line gets a little bit blurry once you get to front end crash reporting or error reporting. Some people think of a crash as being a, a you know a hard unrecoverable situation, which typically if something goes wrong on the back end, it it usually is in that sort of camp. Um, if it's something on the front end, so thinking more like JavaScript, well, you know, I don't think it'll surprise anybody to know that the, that the web browser is pretty much a dumpster fire, right? Like uh, you can't trust it. Uh, you don't know what extensions and stuff you use are running. And so it's quite easy to have issues that occur on the front end with JavaScript code that don't actually prevent the user from doing anything. So it can get a little bit blurry at that end, um, but certainly on the back end, crashes crashes are bad. Um, usually when I'm sort of describing what crash reporting is to 
to folks who might not be as technical as this audience. I just think of it as like a black box flight recorder for, a, for an aircraft, right? Things are going to go wrong. And firstly, I want to know that they went wrong. Secondly, I need to know enough information to know what the heck should I be doing to try and fix these things. Okay. Error monitoring and crash reporting are kind of the same thing then? Yeah, effectively the same thing, just different labels. Uh, usually what we, we found was that in the mobile world, the term crash reporting was far more prevalent outside of mobile. It was often called error reporting, um, but effectively the same uh, the same sort of products uh, in the mix there. Yeah. Okay. Like, let's say if I have uh, some smarter code that can sort of try to do something and then have a reasonable fallback if something fails... Is, are, are those th- cases something that's going to be reported as well? Or are those, if I, in my code, if I've, if I've handled it, um, mm-hmm. is it not reported? So by default, a handled error would not be reported um, because you're doing something with it. It might be completely fine uh, that, that there is an error state or error case in there and you are handling it. What we've found is that <clears throat> usually across our customer base, is most people, the unhandled stuff is the highest value because it's literally the things they didn't think would happen, right? It's yeah. a surprise to them. And then we have some folks that have really great uh, processes around how they build their software, and, and they are actually using, you know, try-catch type constructs all over the place and, and generally doing a pretty good job. And what, what they find is um, they will usually have the certain errors that are in there that even though they're handling, they may want to report on just so that they understand how frequent these are happening um, so they can sort of maybe optimize or change a flow. That requires a little bit more instrumentation. We're talking maybe like a line or two of code, um, but it's it's generally pretty set and forget on the unhandled exceptions. Um, and I, I just want to cut back to a comment you made earlier as well about how um, you said, you know, people just tell you something's wrong and, and, and that's, that's great. Um, but what we what we found when we first built this product is that <clears throat> we actually built, I think, 11 products prior to launching the Raygun one. Um, and so we started instrumenting our older products with the crash reporting piece, uh, partly just to dog food it before launch. And that's where we, we kind of came up with this metric that only about 1% of our customers of the older products would ever tell us that something actually went wrong, like go to the effort of posting in our forum. Um, and we've seen this even when we are working on, a, let's say, a deal to sell to a to a relatively large company. They'll go to our pricing page and say, well, look, maybe the cheapest tier might be like 25,000 euros a month. There's no way I have 25,000 euros a month. And then they put it in and they go, holy shit, there's like you know, 100,000 euros an hour you know, or something oh, wow. like that. The numbers get kind of crazy uh, for what for what can go on in there. Um And, of course, then you start thinking about business impact and kind of go, well, even if only a few percent of these are stopping our users from having a great experience or maybe buying something, um, you know, what's what's the cost of the business by having no visibility into this? and so that that's what we, we kind of see. We've had one customer as an example where they were like, I don't know if we need this. And then they lost a quarter of a million dollars in a day to a software bug. And it was like, ah, maybe we do need this. Um, <laughs> that sort of thing is quite quite common for us to see in our, in our process. Well, when I was looking through some of the stuff you, you offer, if you turn this on, maybe somebody's going to get just, yeah, like piles and piles of error reports. Don't you have like some filtering in place so that people don't get overwhelmed with the results? Yeah, um, there's two types of um, things we do to help folks. Firstly is we, we fingerprint all of those. So so the, the sort of genesis of why we built this was actually my co-founder and I, years and years and years before we ever launched the product, uh, we, we worked in the same um, IT company 
building bespoke software. And uh, we were relatively well well known for our ability to um, deliver pretty high quality outcomes for customers versus some of our peers. And one of the things was that we would always instrument the code to send us an email of everything that um, went wrong. Um, the problem with that, that approach was that there was no smart grouping, right? So you'd very quickly train yourself. You got to be really careful about the the sheer amount of information overload. So if I generated ten thousand errors and I got ten thousand emails, that kind of sucked for me. Um, not to mention that this was in the days of twenty megabyte inboxes. Um, so when we were building Raygun as as sort of like how do we productionize this and make it into a product for people, uh, we realized we really had to do some sort of smart grouping. Uh, and so <clears throat> I probably know more than than a person should about uh, the identity of an error. Like, how do you group two errors together knowing that they're the same error? And folks might think, well, you could look at the type of the error and the message. Well, maybe. The problem is messages typically have some sort of unique identifier in it which breaks things. Um, or, you know, you might look at the stack trace, where in the code base did it come from, those sorts of things. So we, we do all this analysis automatically put a lot of effort into that. So as the errors flow through, we do that grouping. And so we have one customer. They are a very, very large global pizza company. Um, and they use us and they, they generate um, hundreds of thousands of errors uh, every day. But the grouping means that they, they only have a few, I think it's a few hundred uh, sort of actual root cause bugs that they need to go and resolve. And so we typically would work with a customer and our advice is normally, look, pick up the top two bugs and fold them into the current sprint. You know, just fixed two at a time doesn't sound like much. It's pretty easy normally to go in and fix one or two bugs. Uh, and you just kind of continually, uh, relentlessly improve that software. The The other end is we do have filtering um, that people can apply as well, which is around, you know, maybe I don't want any errors generated by known bots. You know, various indexes can be, can be sort of bad citizens on the web, or I want to ignore anything coming from this IP address. <clears throat> Because that's where uh, perhaps we're running a pen test against that box today, and we know it's going to generate a whole lot of spurious errors. All of those sorts of things are, are in the box there as well. Interesting. You have to make it manageable. One of the challenges, I guess, from a product design side is we have some customers that will say things like, okay, we're a new startup. We want this thing to scream at us about every single instance of an error. And then we get those massive you know, Fortune 500 companies that are like, Dear Lord, please make this manageable at our scale. You know, like give us the tools <laughs> to sift through this. Yeah, so balancing that can sometimes be tricky. So have, have tools like this like changed the way people de- develop software? So if I were to write um, like a shrink wrap type software, which I don't even know if anybody does that anymore, where I have to try to design it, try to implement it, and and test it as thoroughly as I can, and send it off, and I'm only relying on like users contacting me with problems because I can't get it any other way. I, I know that people are trying to deploy faster. Have these tools allowed people to develop faster? But does it make people more sloppy? <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know if I've seen people become more sloppy, uh, but I definitely have heard a bunch of um, folks tell us that they will frequently be coding and have sort of, you know, the Raygun crash reporting screen open on another monitor, um, you know, while they're, while they're coding, just watching what's going on in the live view um, just to see. And that typically the people that are pushing to production, you know, several times a day. Um, the the thing that I personally, and this wasn't, this was sort of serendipitous. It wasn't, uh, we, we were one of the first couple of uh, folks to integrate with Slack when Slack first launched and, um 
I remember visiting their office at the time in San Francisco. It was really small. There were there's only a handful of people there. And that really changed the game for a lot of these these sorts of products because we noticed that folks uh, started to um, not uh, want to send themselves emails, but they send the notifications about the issues into Slack channels. And, and, and this is how Raygun, the company, how we actually do development is that those things stream in there. And of course, that, that enables what you know, so the cool kids would call chat ops. So something comes in and the team can kind of have a bit of a conversation and slack around it. Maybe they trigger a thread off the notification in there and they can kind of collaborate and understand what's going on with, with a particular issue. Uh, it's also useful for people then spotting something that, that they kind of go, hey, look, that looks like some sort of new issue or something that's just gone out and we've just done this deployment. And so it's it's sort of more uh, helped the collaboration within teams pushing pushing things out. Um, the the stories now that I think about it, you know, of the folks that are leaving it open on another monitor are typically uh, more the the smaller teams or, or individual developers that are wanting to, you know, they own things from end to end. So anything that does go wrong, they're going to have to deal with it regardless. Um, while the chat style is certainly something that has um, absolutely taken off within the larger organizations and and folks with remote teams. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, to be realistic, it's overkill to try to thoroughly test everything to the nth degree and just uh, provably impossible. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 my, my personal view as well. I mean, I'm you ask any of the, the software engineers at Raygun and they'll, they'll be able to tell you that I'm often beating the drum of like, you know, more unit tests, more integration tests, we need more stuff in, in here. You know, we sell the product, and and I'm not even an advocate for the idea that we only rely on a crash reporting product. Um, these things have to work together, uh, and it's kind of amusing to me because I see people that often reply to like our Twitter ads where we talk about this, and you'll see things like, ah, if you just did test driven development, then you wouldn't even need this product. And I'm like, I don't know, like that smells like a lot of <laughs> bullshit to me. Yeah. Um, I've never seen somebody go, here is a completely error-free piece of code only because I did test-driven development. And if that was true, it would be something of absolutely insignificant size. Um, there is always things that, that people don't count on. And you know, one of the things I find super interesting about the space of, of error reporting or crash reporting is that um, in some ways it's it's it scares me because I you realize that these are all situations that the engineer didn't think would happen. By definition, that is almost exactly the same as a security issue, right? Yeah. Nobody really sets out to build a security issue unless maybe they, they work at the NSA, but it's it's not something you plan for. And, and to sort of say, well, maybe we don't need to even think about security if we did test-driven development because we've thought of all the edge cases is just baloney. Um, you, you need all aspects here. You know, Boeing is not going to suddenly go, we don't need black box flight recorders because we did a little bit of extra testing. Um, you know, uh, just not not helpful to anybody to think that there's, you know, one silver bullet answer to everything. There's a gamut of different type of, types of companies as well. There's quite a few companies that I know of that are just run by even one person or a, a handful of people. Um, and they're serving a lot of people. And also sometimes like, you know, uh, projects that people rely on that it's not even one person that, that's supporting it. It's one person in their spare time. And mm -hmm. so that person can't be completely doing everything, dotting every I and double checking absolutely everything before deploying it. And they can't watch it all the time. So tools like this, I think are really great to, to allow um, small businesses and even side projects to 
be as responsive as a large company with without really having to do much. So, yeah. Well, and the the other end of it that, and you know, I mentioned in uh, in my sort of bio that I, I'm very passionate about both software and business. And uh, on the business side of the table, you've got to think, okay, there's there's metrics like what's our cost to acquire a customer, uh, what's our lifetime value of a customer, what's our churn rate, all these sorts of things. And I I've often felt quite strongly that tools like this provide value far beyond just, hey, let's help the engineers know the extent of the problems and how they might go about fixing them and actually think, well, you know, if if one in every 10 user has an issue actually trying to set up my software project, even if it's a side project, you know, now I have to I have to get t- like 10% more people to even try the damn thing for me to make up for that issue. Um, and so there is a direct correlation between software quality and software performance and that ability to um, drive adoption, right? Nobody likes something that's slow. Nobody wants to use something that's buggy. Um, that's just, I mean, you look at this, this, we've got a history littered with where this stuff hasn't worked. You know, I, I've recently been watching some reviews of old, uh, the, I think it was SimCity when that came out in like 2013 or something, you know, and that thing just didn't work. It was buggy and it was horribly slow. And uh, now no one talks about SimCity, right? Um, these things can kill or, or help businesses thrive uh, they're not just for the engineer. Um, I, I honestly think sometimes folks should, you know, wander over to marketing and say, right, we're going to take some of your budget because wouldn't you love it if five uh, percent more of the people you can send to the to our app actually could, you know, pay for it? Um, <laughs> you know, that might be the biggest impact that they could have. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of things that 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 I I think about beyond just the engineering team here as well, which. Uh, it, it does add value. Yep. It's fairly easy to get my head around why I care about error reporting and stuff. Uh, it's a customer experience thing. On the performance side, if your spending on different servers goes up unnecessarily, if you could try to tune that performance, you can spend less I, or just you know make things work faster. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. So I want to kind of ask you about user monitoring because when you say user monitoring, my first thought is, aren't we not supposed to do that anymore? Isn't that like uh, anti-privacy? So uh, help me understand user monitoring and the value there. Yeah, sure. Well, first I'd start off by saying I absolutely am in agreement with you that we shouldn't be tracking people uh, in a nefarious way. And that's exactly why people should look at products like, like Raygun rather than maybe you know, their favorite free analytics tool from a giant ad tech company that <laughs> is doing crazy stuff with the data. Um, so first and foremost, you know, our, our position on all of this is that yeah, the data we receive from our customers is our customers' um, data. We don't do anything scary with it. We did adopt uh, fully full support for things like GDPR out of the European uh, union, uh, which I think is absolutely fantastic for uh, the consumer, their right to control their data, their right to be forgotten, their right to say, tell me about the data you've got on me. Um, all of that stuff is really important, and I absolutely support that. Uh, and the, the plus side of it is as well is that um, that was very easy for us to support because we don't do anything sketchy with the data. <laughs> like sits in, a, sits in our data stores and it's available to you, our customer, to do something with, and that's it. Um, so back to, to the specific point of RUM, though, 
Um, it's it's kind of unfortunate, I guess, in today's world that the that the words user and monitoring are in there together, um, because RUM is a specific product category that is about measuring the performance of actual users. So the the reason real user is in there is because it's to make the counter argument to things like synthetic testing. You know, ping the site, tell me the response time. Um, synthetic testing is really good for things like SLA checks, is the site up, that sort of thing, noticing if there's a baseline change, like did we do a deployment where the performance changed. However, uh, synthetic testing doesn't actually give you any real-world insight into the performance of your software. And RUM is really uh, focused on performance part of the, the equation. It's less about, you know, tell me about what Brian's doing on the internet um, and maybe across sites and stuff like that. That's, that's not what it's about. It's about saying, here's the distribution of load times that you're seeing. So good examples that we've seen customers using us with is um, we had a large e-commerce customer who was rebuilding their front end in React and they wanted to A-B test the, um, the load time for the user. So it was all well and good that they were moving to React, but they knew that performance was so important that if, if they lost any time, that they would convert less and make less money. And so until their React version was uh, noticeably quicker than the old one, they weren't going to flip over to that. Uh, and that, as an aside, is one of the major things that I'm seeing as, as a pattern in software across the world is that in the past, everybody focused on What's my server performance? What's my slow database query? What's going to take a while for the server to give me a response? Nearly every customer uh, that I work with, this is usually sitting down and sort of you know going through their data with them and having some conversations. The servers these days are, are usually responding pretty quick. It's on those fancy blooming JavaScript frameworks that are adding three, four, six, seven, eight, ten seconds to the load time for the user just waiting for the browser to be able to actually grind through all that code and composite the page. But if you're just doing server monitoring and you're going, my server is returning this page in 300 milliseconds, pat myself on the back and not realize that it's giving customers a 10-second load time, um, that's a huge problem. And, of course, developers are often the least aware of these performance issues because, firstly, they get given, you know, normally, apologies to those that don't, pretty high-powered computers because software development can be quite intensive. They're also working on the code and typically are loading everything off localhost when they're, when they're in development, um, which only impacts the network latency, obviously not the render time. Um, but then they also have all sorts of caching and stuff because they're reloading the stuff all the time. If you've got your first time that a user hits your site, you know, and they're pulling down like you know, nine megs of JavaScript and your fancy web pack and, you know, React sits there trying to grind through stuff, that's a shitty experience. Um, nobody wants... <laughs> you know, nobody wants to use that software. So RUM is about understanding how long is the user waiting to do stuff and at what point are they dropping off and what are the outliers in that time. Um, so it's all well and good to say that the average load time, for example, is three seconds. But what about the last 10% of users? What are they seeing? Is the P90 like eight seconds? Is it acceptable for our customers, the 10% of our customers to get eight second load times? What's contributing to that? Um, so quite a long answer, but that, that's really what it's about. It's not, it's not about snooping on your behavior and, and doing anything um, creepy like that. It does sound interesting. Like you said, even 10% are experiencing something that stops their accomplishing what they want to accomplish. You kind of want to know about that. So, 
Yeah, so I, I kind of think rum, you know, to continue on my laboured analogy to, to aircraft is kind of like your uh, airlines ratings website. Like people want to go with the with the airline that's going to get them from A to B the fastest, you know, um, they're not going to want the one that's got eight layovers. Uh, so it's about trying to understand how do we how do we actually um, perform for our users. Like I say, it's just a shame that user monitoring is in the label for the category because <laughs> it does sound a little bit more nefarious than you'd want it to be. Okay. When people are looking at their reports for this, is it uh, more of a generalized thing? Are you are you seeing? individual like usernames and so by default we don't do any usernames we do have the ability for folks if they want to tag like let's say users logged into a system they can expose that um so as an example we use that feature for tracking um raygun itself and the great thing about that is you know let's say you are a raygun user brian you shoot you you contact us and say i'm having this problem let's say you know um our team doesn't even need you to tell us what the problem is. They can just kind of go, well, here's Brian's login in our system and here are all the errors he's had and here's, here is the, the performance profile he's been experiencing. Um, and so they can they can pick that up. But obviously that's a feature that um, appeals to some and can't be used by others based on their own internal privacy things. Again, we don't do anything with that data, um, so it's not, it's not going anywhere. But I totally understand that folks don't uh, necessarily want to turn that on. I was just thinking, it totally makes sense depending on the different type of site you're running. So like, I mean, I know everybody always cares about privacy, but like, let's say I've got, um, I was just thinking about a friend of mine that has a, like a software training course site. People are on there to just learn, take courses and learn different things. Totally would seem reasonable to have usernames on there because if somebody contacts you and says, Hey, I paid, I paid for this course and it's not working on my machine. You can just look at that and say, Oh yeah, apparently I don't support Safari or something or, you know, whatever. Um, and try to fix it without having to ask, uh, you know, nobody really likes all those questions of, of like, can you tell me absolutely everything about your computer, uh, before you tell me what the problem is? So, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and and we do see a, a bunch of our customers using us in that sort of customer support role of like, let's not now make the user try to have to understand what the computer's doing if, if, if we can avoid it. Um, one thing we have seen folks do, and this is fully supported and something we do, is there is a mid, mid-range where you get the customer that says, well, I'd like to be able to understand who the user is, but, you know, we have a privacy privacy concern with sharing that data. Um, which, like I say, despite all of the protections, I totally understand, um, is that a lot of them do things like, rather than, say, put in an email address as an identifier, uh, they might put in the primary key for that user out of their own database. So we might see a 1234. Well, that means nothing, right? But if they absolutely need to find out something about that user, they can totally punch 1234 into the app and find everything about the errors and performance story for them. And so that seems to be like a pretty happy mid-ground for, for being able to, say, empower our customer to be able to support their users even better, while also not necessarily uh, having to share anything that, that might be um, might be questionable or, or particularly identifiable to us. So let's say I've got this, um, I'm a small small one-person shop or something, and I, um, and I start getting some traction on a web application. Where in the process... Um, of growth, do you think somebody should start thinking about adding some of these tools to a project? So I'm obviously pretty biased, but I have the the view that I would start out with crash reporting from day one. Um, 
the the reason for that is is that the behavior that I've kind of seen is that most people will put in a product like this and they will tend to stop increasing the number of errors that they introduce. Uh, but they they may not necessarily get the bandwidth or time to sort of go back and and fix uh, all of the issues. Um, that's the ideal, but you know just the the fact of the matter is, especially in a, maybe that one man band situation, you just might not have the time to fix everything. So you might fix the the key things that you know are having an impact and kind of leave the rest there for another day. Kind of like the equivalent of how you know the ever expanding backlog in Jira, um, but they they don't tend to wildly increase from whenever they put it in. Because you might do a new new release and you'll notice, okay, this is a new issue. I'll go fix that right now because I've still got all the context in my head. It's super simple. And that's great. Real user monitoring, however, I probably would not put into to a system until I actually had some form of scale or understanding of product market fit. Unless I had my customers already complaining about um, poor performance, I would leave that. We also do see that as well in terms of customer adoption. So crash reporting, we absolutely sell to to individuals through to you know Fortune 50 businesses. Real user monitoring um, typically appeals far more to companies at scale. They're usually the ones that will know that you know one extra second of of load time might cost them five million dollars a month, uh, and so therefore performance is, is quite paramount because they're at scale. Um, and then lastly, APM, which is a newer product for us, uh, kind of has the same. Um, behavioral style is crash reporting and that most folks know they kind of need something uh, and we see that selling from small through to larger organizations as well i'd probably only you would only worry about apm though once you had something actually in production um, live so you might not put that in just when you were doing the first development uh, work so that's that's kind of how i think about it so you can do the crash reporting stuff even on um, test server or something then yeah absolutely so you you can put it in there, send it in, flag it as being, say, in your test environment. So the way we do it at Raygun is we have uh, different environments. Obviously, there's developer machine. We then have an office environment, uh, which is, to be blunt, is a little bit of a relic of the past when we, we, we were in a particular office that didn't have a particularly great internet connection. So we, we replicated some of the infrastructure internally to test on. Then we have our beta environment that is a mimic in the cloud and then you have production right and so each of these actually sends uh all of their crash data rum data and apm data into different buckets in the app so that folks can sort of uh track that so going back to that chat ops example that i used earlier uh we do have a non-production errors channel uh in our slack and so folks can see in there as they're doing these tests and things that as they're getting towards prod, uh, if things start cropping up in there before maybe a customer would have experienced it. Um, so that that's proved useful. Did you say that it runs even on like people's development environment? Yeah, they'll typically have it integrated in dev as well. We'll send that off. Um, the thing is, for this it might be slightly unique to us, but at the scale we now operate at, so to, to give the audience, I guess, some some idea we, we process between about 100 million and 500 million api calls an hour through the raygun platform today uh and so in order to sort of manage and facilitate that scale there's a lot of moving parts okay so usually when you'd be building something on your on your machine for example you know if an error occurs it pops up with the error message and you can deal with it right there and then but if you've got say five or six processes all working together can get a little bit murky that seems like a lot of data <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we, we do have some pretty big customers. Um, one of our customers, as an example, uh, uses RUM to track the uh, end user experience and their peak number of users that we've tracked across their apps at, at one time was 88 million concurrent users. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, the platform certainly can operate at, at terrific scale. Some of the largest uh, sort of services and brands that are out there um, use us in a pretty big way. There's there's a few logos on the site. Some of those bigger ones were obviously under sort of, you know, NDA not to not to sort of talk about. But yeah, there's a there's a terrific amount of data that goes through uh, to help help these companies improve their their offerings. Now how big how many people work at Reagan? How big of a company are you? There's about forty of us uh, at the moment. Um, yeah, and we're working towards uh, probably being around a hundred at the end of next year. Wow, when did when did you guys start? So we launched Raygun as a as a product uh, in twenty thirteen. So coming up to I guess that's about five five years now, six years. Um, yeah, uh, and when we launched it, we we actually ran uh, our company was uh, ran under a different name, and like I said, we built these other products for developers, and and they sold reasonably well, but we were only about five five or six people at the time, uh, because what we'd done previously, and forgive me, this is a little bit outside of the the testing realm, but um, we we sort of my business partner and I stepped out in two thousand and seven to build our company, um, and we decided we wanted to build software products, but we also wanted to bootstrap the business. And so our first contract in the first week was a quarter of a million dollar uh, deal with Microsoft, where we built some <clears throat> demoware for them on how to build modern scalable web applications. And that was really our seed money. And then, then through the years up until we built Raygun, we kind of kept working on these different products and putting them out there and having uh, mixed levels of success. Uh, but we also teamed up and helped build other businesses where we would take an equity stake in their company uh, and kind of be the the engineering team, if you will. So we built uh, like New Zealand's largest philanthropic website that uh, I think it's done something like $100 million in donations in New Zealand, which which is not bad for a country of only 4.5 million people. Um, and we you know, were, were part of that, and that was sold. We helped build a business valuation company. We built an email mining um, service, kind of like the ones that help you better understand what's in your own inbox um, and various things like that. When we, when we built Raygun, though, that was kind of a turning point for us in saying, okay, well, rather than doing these split deals with other orgs, um, we're going to sort of go all in on our – on our own stuff. And then the Raygun product actually got uh, so popular um, quite quickly for us that um, people started questioning why they were even seeing the old company name, which was Mindscape, on the credit card bills because they had no idea who Mindscape was. And so we changed the company name to Raygun. Uh, following on from that was when we added the real user monitoring and APM tools to sort of help complete that visibility into everything about how your, your users are experiencing your software. Um, so that that's kind of the the history of how we got from you know a couple of nerds going and starting a company to <laughs> to who we are now. Did you expect this? Are you s- surprised by the growth and of the company and and the projects? Um, you know, on the one hand, I'm pleased about it. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think I will ever be satisfied with the growth. You know, I always wanted to to have more more customers, more uh, like. The, the interesting thing for me is people always kind of assume when you're a business owner that you must be motivated by the money, right? Like you've got to be money obsessed to be to be building a business. And it's like, 
You know what? You know, the money is one thing um, for sure. You know, uh, you wouldn't necessarily take the risk without there feeling like there's the potential for an upside. But the reality is day to day, what really gets me excited is seeing a new customer come on, uh, seeing how our systems handle those data volumes, watching that, seeing them improve their software. Like the cool thing is I know exactly which apps, for example, on my phone and my desktop that I know that um will continually get better because they're using products like ours. And so I, I like that side. And then lastly, the thing I really, really enjoy is as we add more people to the team is just kind of going, you know what? It's really neat to have built something that um, is helping pay these people and that pays for their families and, you know, mortgages and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Like all of those softer things are far, far, far more exciting to me and, and fulfilling on a day-to-day basis than, than thinking about, you know, hey, what's the actual enterprise value that we've got here? Yeah, that's cool. I don't know if you mentioned it on the podcast yet, but you do like to code still? Yeah. Do you get to? Uh, well, I love to code. So I started coding um, when I was nine years old. Uh, using QBasic on a 486 SX25 with 8 megabytes of RAM. Um, and, and I always say that to people as well. They go, God, you must have been a smart kid. I'm like, no, that is literally how kind of easy it is to start coding. If a nine-year-old can self-teach themselves, then, you know, it's not it's not that hard. You know, you don't need to think of software developers as being some sort of, you know, Mensa member geniuses. Um, but to me, I was really into uh, Lego as a kid. You know, and especially Lego Technics. Um, and so, to me, when I discovered coding, it was kind of like discovering a, a box that had an unlimited number of Lego pieces. Like I could stop hounding my parents, I could build whatever I wanted, and if I couldn't build it, it was because I was uh, too dumb. You know, and I had to think harder about a problem to try and solve it. And that sort of psychology has stuck with me till till now. So I do not code day to day on the um, on the on the Raygun platform. These days, um, I do occasionally do a little bit of coding in the in the weekend. So an example, uh, just this weekend, Bean, was that I pulled down the code from our notification worker, which handles the dispatching of notifications to various endpoints like Slack and email and SQS and all of that stuff. Um, and I just kind of went through and I, I looked at sort of the Raygun data on a couple of errors that we'd seen out of that thing that looked kind of questionable. I fixed a couple of those up. You know, I made a I made a couple of code tidy ups in there and got that out. And then outside of the more work related coding, um, I've been uh, trying to learn a lot more about uh, machine learning um, and algorithms. I feel like that is the first uh, call it like major change that's come to the software development world uh, in recent years since I stopped being a day to day coder. And I'm a little I don't want to be that guy that that sort of goes well. Everything after when I, when I sort of didn't do it day to day, I just didn't learn. I want to be able to engage with the team who are working on our you know, ML code and things like that and be able to have a high caliber, high bandwidth conversation with them. So I do invest a bit of time in, in, in learning stuff that way. Yeah, that's cool. Well, it's just so fun. Absolutely. Even in like the machine learning and, and um, data science spaces, there's, there's places for people to uh, expand what they're doing and learn new things, even if they only have like 20 minutes in the evening to, to work on it. Yep. Do you do still enjoy coding? Is there anything in particular about your role at work that is the most fun still? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I certainly, I certainly enjoy my job. Um, the, the, 
I would I would also say though that you know the the role of CEO is 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 not one for for everybody. Um, it's it is challenging. The I think one of the things that you certainly have to make trade offs in coding, but often the trade offs that you're making in coding don't involve maybe hurting someone's feelings or making somebody feel bad. Um, certainly, a lot of decisions that you're you're making in a, in a CEO role, you know, you've really got to think about the consequences of um, because they can they can you know potentially ruin somebody's day week or whatever. So there, there are elements in there that I, I don't particularly enjoy um, uh, from time to time, but. What I do really appreciate is that the team know that I'm a I'm a huge nerd, and so um, I do sort of you know call it walk the floor, if you will, um, management by walking around uh, a couple of times a day, and I just love sort of seeing the the things that folks are building. Um, in my mind, uh, you know, software is about amplifying human ability. You can sit there and write some code and achieve so much more um, because of the ability to leverage the computer, right? And business is, is actually the same. How do we sort of bring people together to achieve more than one person can do? And, you know, all of us have that sort of Iron Man fantasy of, you know, one man can just do it all or, or woman, um, you know, but the fact of the matter is you can't. You, you've got to sort of bring these things together. And so that side of things is what, uh, gets me out of bed is kind of seeing the the cool stuff that the team can do at scale, some of the amazing things that are in there. Um, you know, a good example was I mentioned that customer with, you know, all of those concurrent users. Well, it wasn't like the old version of our code just magically handled that. We had to do a whole lot of work to figure out how we were going to scale to handle, you know, that from a single customer. And I love seeing the innovation and invention that comes to solving those sorts of those sorts of problems. So I kind of get to to experience the wins without necessarily always writing the code, which is slightly less satisfying, but it it's still pretty satisfying. Um, the bit that kind of concerns me these days is we'll bring some people on, and you know they might be there for a few weeks, and and they'll sort of maybe sheepishly ask me, so you know. How technically you, you know, they're not used to, to, to a CEO who actually knows like how to code and, and, you know, can have high fidelity conversations about how to, how to do some of these things. That's cool though. I mean, it's pretty neat. I think of it as a superpower. Um, you know, like one of the things we're building out a, a business intelligence team at, at Raygun at the moment to just help ensure that we make better decisions based on the, on our business data that we have. And one of their tasks is to kind of go through our admin site and slowly get rid of all the reports that were, you know, coded up by JD on like a Saturday night with a glass of whiskey, you know, um, and it tell, tell, tells me the data I needed, but I didn't bother with Axies labels or something, you know, <laughs> weird stuff like that. Um, so uh, we, we, we managed to get quite far on, on that sort of style of things. But um, but yeah, those, those days are now behind us. I've been a manager for handful of years now. And my boss told me once uh, that he knew that I was proving when during our reviews, I stopped telling him all the cool things I was doing and started telling him all the cool things my team was doing. And uh, he said, I think you got it now. Yep. I would agree with that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. If you're um, ever in Portland, I'm going to have to have you go whiskey bar hopping with me. Well, you know, there is a non-zero chance that I will actually be in Portland later this year. Um, we, we, as we mentioned before, we started recording. I think we have an office in Seattle. I've been 
pretty tied to New Zealand this year because we've uh, my, my wife and I had our first child um, and you know wanted wanted to be supportive by by not running away for weeks on end to to the other office. Um, but we're actually running a couple of events for tech leaders, both in Seattle and in Portland, and and I may be there for that as well. So if I I am, I'll I'll certainly reach out. Ah, that'd be great. Cool. Yep. Well, um, I have had a lot of fun talking to you about um, all this stuff, and so thanks a lot for coming on the show. I've had an absolute blast, Brian. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, JD, for helping me understand the power and usefulness of tools like crash reporting, performance monitoring, and real performance monitoring. Seriously, I learned a lot in this episode. Thank you to Patreon supporters for continuing to support the show. Join them by going to testingcode.com support. And yes, this episode of Test and Code is sponsored by Raygun. It takes just a few minutes to get started. They provide a small code snippet for you to drop in your code. And from then on, Raygun has your back. Take control of your app monitoring with Raygun. Check them out at raygun.com. That's R-A-Y-G-U-N.com. That link is also in our show notes at testandcode.com slash 88. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. Or maybe make sure your users are getting the best experience they can by adding some crash reporting.